Hi, Jane. Hi, Sabria. We've got a heck of a lot to get into. We do. We're going to talk about the Saskatchewan prison system. And particularly how it pertains to the Indigenous population in Canada. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk to a listener who wrote in because he uh, was mad at a little thing I said <laughs> about libertarians and conservatives being, you know, under the same sort of umbrella. And then uh, you and I have uh, a little bit to talk about. The Candidate Gender Equity Act, proposed by uh, Kennedy Stewart of the NDP, wants to make it so that at least 45% of slated candidates are uh, female. Oh, God. However will we go on? I'm Sapria Devetti. I'm Jane Litvinenko. And this is Canada Land Comments. This episode of Canada Land Commons is supported by Audible.com. If you go to audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand right now, you can get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial. What's a book that uh, our listeners can read, Supriya? Well, because I like to be taken down many pegs at any given moment, I'm currently listening to You Are Not So Smart, Why You Have Too Many Friends on Facebook, Why Your Memory Is Mostly Fiction, and 46 Other Ways You're Deluding Yourself. So if you like self-deprecation, check it out. Go to audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand right now for a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand. We are joined by Matt Bufton, executive director and co-founder for the Institute for Liberal Studies. Now, Matt, last month we talked a little bit about the Conservative Party and different factions within that Conservative Party. So I mentioned that there is a social conservative faction, and I also mentioned that there was a libertarian faction. And, you know, you ended up sending an email to our producer, Kevin, about that. In your email, you stated... I'm listening to episode number 47, and Supriya mentions libertarians as a subset of conservatives. While some libertarians do vote for the conservatives, many of us don't. Please don't lump us in with them. So I guess, Matt, what prompted you to send that email? Um, That's sort of a longstanding pet peeve of mine that often people, and this is uh, also conservatives and perhaps especially conservatives, tend to view libertarians as a type of conservatives. And I think that's completely wrong. So how would you go about defining libertarianism? Yeah, I'd say a libertarian is someone who uh, sort of makes a presumption of liberty, is the way that I like to describe it, in that if we look at a problem, we think that probably the best way to solve it is through some sort of voluntary means without a government program that relies on forcing people to behave a certain way or or spending tax dollars to convince them to, to do a certain thing. And sometimes that is the Conservative Party, but a lot of the times it's not. So who do you vote for if not the Conservatives? Uh, It all depends. Uh, The last few elections, I've had a Libertarian Party candidate uh, in my riding, and so I have voted for them. Before that, I would uh, often spoil a ballot, but I would vote for a major party candidate if I thought that uh, in a particular election, they represented the values of liberty. So what are some specific policies that you support as you look at the government now? Yeah, I mean, one thing that I'd really like is uh, is a more simplified tax code. Uh, I think when we look at the Panama Papers uh, situation that's come up recently, that's in large part a response to a complex tax code that encourages people to try and uh, you know get money away from the, the government tax collectors. I think if we had a flat tax uh, with a sort of gradually, very gradually and steadily increasing rate on higher earners, that that incentive would go away. I'd like to see the legalization of marijuana that the government 
government has promised, but I'd also like to see the legalization of pretty much all drugs. And I'd also like to see us continue our sort of tradition of being very open. I like what this government has done with refugees, but I wish they'd make that very broad and make it very easy for lots of people to come to Canada. Now, everything you're saying seems perfectly reasonable and, and sounds like a lot of people could get on board. So why isn't there a mainstream Libertarian Party of Canada that's out there making this case to everyday Canadians come voting time? I think it's because our political parties in Canada don't actually tend to be that ideological. I think some people perceive these huge differences between the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party that I just don't think actually exist. I mean, if you look at Harper's record uh, while he was in power, what in there could you not imagine Paul Martin as a, as a Prime Minister, a Liberal Prime Minister, or a John Manley having done? I think there's very little. And again, if you look even at, at Justin Trudeau's uh, record, is there a lot that he's done that you can't imagine a Conservative Prime Minister, perhaps not Harper, but but a conservative prime minister doing. So I think our parties tend to be pretty close to the center, and they tend to reflect mainstream views much more than they reflect any particular ideology. In terms of Canadian libertarianism, isn't that a bit of, of a harder sell just because so much of our political capital is in fact tied to big government in a way? You know, our, our health care is obviously run by government. Our education, I joke often with family in the States that McGill is, is nothing more than a fancy state school at the end of the day because <laughs> that's exactly what it is. So isn't it a little bit harder to sell, I guess, libertarianism to Canadians? Give me your perspective. Yeah, no, it absolutely can be at the outset. And I think part of that is uh, sort of a result of two national myths. In the U.S., there's a national myth that they are the home of liberty and, and a country that really values freedom. And in Canada, we have a national myth, and others view us this way, and we often view ourselves this way, as a country that is built on a social contract, a, a large parental government. But if you actually start looking into the situation, I think both of those fall apart pretty quickly. The U.S. Uh, has ranked lower than Canada on the Economic Freedom Index of the world for several years. And that's an index that's put together by the Fraser Institute, by the Cato Institute. People are pretty sympathetic to sort of free market libertarian views. So on the economic side, they say that Canada is substantially freer than the U.S. If you look at the social side, I don't have data at my fingertips to support this, but I'd say it's pretty clear that a lot of social things, we've never had a big war on drugs in Canada. We never had the slavery problem. We've never had as much of a controversy over gay marriage, which we passed 10 years ago. So I think that Canada tends to be pretty friendly to freedom, both economically and socially. And that's, to me, a large part of what being a libertarian is. So Matt, just wanted to push back a little bit on that point, RE Canada having no slavery, because as we all know, that isn't exactly the case. We didn't have a civil war over it to the same degree as they did in the States. But you know, it's it's not as if our, our hands are ex exactly clean on this issue. Um, yeah, no, I guess you're right to an extent. Uh, at one point in what is now Canada, of course, that there was slavery. And what I was sort of referring to was the fact that the British Empire got rid of slavery before Canada as a nation came into being. So while, while in the U.S. there was this, I think, a really significant tension between someone like Thomas Jefferson, who some people hold up as a paragon of liberty, but, but he owned slaves. And if you look at our sort of founding political figures, we don't have that issue because it was resolved, at least partially, many years earlier. I want to ask you about your organization. So you run a charitable organization, which means that you get government assistance, like tax breaks, for example. So how do you reconcile that with your own political ideology? 
Um, yeah, so we, we are a charity. So the only government form of government funding that we get is uh, is the people who make a donations to us can write those off on their tax receipts. Uh, aside from that, all the money that we get is uh, privately and voluntarily given. So would I prefer that we didn't have this system of, of charitable giving in Canada? I, I probably would. But if it's there, then I think it's appropriate to use it. And the work that we do is educational. Uh, we don't uh, endorse or oppose any political candidates ever. So uh, we fit the definition of a, a charitable act. Um, and in the same way that I, I don't think that universal health care is necessarily the best way to go. But if I get sick, I'm going to go to a government-run hospital because it's there and that's the system we have. Now, given that you just said you don't actually endorse or oppose any candidate, I'm actually going to ask you about a specific candidate because I'm a bit of a jerk like that. <laughs> but so talking about Maxim Bernier, you know, he just started his campaign for the conservative leadership and, and he's talked a lot about lower, lower taxes and smaller government. And he actually has described himself in the past as being libertarian or libertarian leaning. And he's already hinted at support for decriminalizing marijuana. So could a guy like Maxim Bernier kind of rally the, you know, libertarian troops up in Canada? I think there's certainly a possibility, and I can tell you that I do have some friends who are very excited about uh, Maxime's uh, candidacy, um, and they think that if he is successful, that the Conservative Party will take a sort of libertarian swing. They might be right, but I'm more skeptical. I, I do uh, look back at his record. He, you know, he was a, uh, a member of Parliament and uh, often a cabinet minister for almost 10 years during the Harper government. And uh, while I do think that uh, Maxime probably has personal feelings and thoughts that are pretty libertarian, he still voted along with a lot of anti-libertarian stuff as part of the, the Harper government. You know, they supported supply management. They had a real tough-on-crime uh, agenda. They had some, some very xenophobic campaign uh, rhetoric going in the last election. They increased government spending. They gave bailouts to auto companies. And they really complicated the tax code. And those are all things that I think moved us further away from a, a libertarian Canada. So is there anybody that you do look for in ideological inspiration here in Canada? Is there anybody who's giving you hope? Not not currently. I mean, we look to the uh, we look to the past uh, often, and, and we look to people like a Wilfrid Laurier, who I think was a classical liberal, and and that's pretty darn close to being a libertarian. But currently, I just don't put a lot of faith in politicians. Uh, what I do put my faith in is uh, is the regular people of Canada, and I think that uh, despite uh, any failures from our politicians, if you were to look at the average Canadian now versus almost any time in the past, are they more or less libertarian? And, and I think it's more. We've become much more socially accepting, and we have uh, have a lot less faith in these large government programs that were on vogue in the you know, 50s and 60s. We're talking a lot about federal politicians here, but do you think you know it's a better strategy to be aiming to get libertarians into office at the, the local level, so at the municipal level, or even at the provincial level? I, it certainly could be. I mean, I think uh, one part of a libertarian sort of political view is that you should probably have a, a more local government deal with most uh, most elements. There are some things like national defense that you're going to want to do federally. But uh, in terms of things like, uh, say, education and health care, for all the flaws that I could point to in, in our government-run systems, I think the fact that they are handled provincially, and in some cases locally, rather than federally, uh, is one of the reasons we've had some better outcomes than, say, the U.S. Speaking of the U.S., just once again, you know, <laughs> often when people think about libertarians, the image that comes to mind is, is, is a Tea Party type. So do you think libertarians in Canada have a bit of a branding problem? 
I think uh, libertarians almost always have a, a bit of a branding problem in that people, especially people living in, say, Canada today, just assume that many things will be done by the government. And, uh, and sometimes when they hear people say, I don't want the government to do that, what they hear is it shouldn't be done. So, uh, you know, our argument isn't that, uh, that we would prefer privately run schools over publicly run schools because we dislike poor people and we want their children to be dumb and, and poor and unemployed. We think those lead to better educational outcomes. But that's not an argument you can win in, in 30 seconds. You need to find people who really want to think about it, discuss it, and in some cases do a pretty substantial amount of reading to learn more about how these things might work. Matt, thank you so much for your time. We are joined by Tanara Yelland, a freelance journalist, formerly of Canada Land, just to put that out there. Tanara, you wrote this piece in Briar Patch magazine called A Matter of Life and Death in Remand. Uh, the piece starts with a story about Brianna Canick. Can you just give us a brief backgrounder on, on who she was? Sure. Last summer, she was living in Saskatchewan and had developed a drug addiction. And she got arrested for the second time in late August last year, and she was held in remand until her court hearing. So she was arrested on a Sunday night, and her court hearing for bail was on Thursday, or was supposed to be, but she died in jail before then. And so you mentioned that she had a drug addiction. It was actually to opiates, right? Yeah. yeah. And while she was in prison, we all know going through withdrawal, you often hear about drugs such as methadone to help with those you know, withdrawal symptoms, and she wasn't given any. No. I spoke to her mom fairly extensively, and her mother told me that Brianna had asked about some sort of medication, methadone, or some other sort of medication to help deal with the withdrawal, and she didn't receive any. Most of us would like to think that if you're under state care, which is essentially what she was, that if you are having any sort of medical issue, that those issues would at least be resolved to some degree. Am I being naive here? Like, No, I think that's kind of the least you could expect. And there was a second woman who died in Saskatchewan also of withdrawal or seemingly of withdrawal from opiates at the end of December. And she had actually either already been in talks with a doctor outside of jail or been planning to make an appointment to get into a methadone program. And she also appears not to have been able to access that. I wasn't able to contact her family, but that appears to be what happened with her as well. So one of the reasons why she didn't get the help that she needed is like your piece highlights because there's no 24-hour doctor care or nurse care in prisons. What do prisons do for medical care? I should say that the piece I wrote was specifically about Saskatchewan provincial centers, but in Saskatchewan there are doctors that are on call and they make regularly scheduled visits to centers, prisons, and when they're on call, it's up to guards to determine if an inmate is in need of urgent medical care. So that really seems like a system set up for abuse or neglect. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I don't know how many guards are outright maliciously abusive, but one of the things that I learned while I was doing interviews for this piece is that a big part of training for becoming a correctional guard is to always be on the lookout for inmates who are trying to manipulate you or abuse the system themselves, 
which breeds a lot of distrust in addition to the distrust a lot of people have for people who are incarcerated in general. So, yeah, I think neglect is fairly likely in that system. You spoke to Brianna's mother. Um, Do you want to just tell us about how she found out about her own daughter's death? She was waiting for a phone call on Wednesday from her daughter that she didn't receive. And then on Thursday, she was expecting to be notified from her daughter's bail officer about the money that she would have to send to bail her daughter out. She didn't hear a call. And she got a call from her own mother saying that there was news on Facebook that Brianna had died in prison. Just from musings or rumblings from, I guess, people in her social circle? Yeah. One of the local papers, the Saskatoon Star Phoenix, had reported that someone died in remand and someone had put the pieces together that it was Brianna. And then friends were posting about it on Facebook. And so that is how Brianna's mother found out while she was at work. She told me that she was in shock and didn't believe it at first, which Uh, makes sense. Understandably, yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but once it became clear that it was true, she still had a very difficult time confirming it with the province. She had to make a number of phone calls to the bail officer and the remand before she could finally get confirmation that her own daughter had passed away. Did the province provide her with any sort of explanation as to why they didn't contact her before she had to find out through friggin' social media? Yeah, she said that they told her they couldn't figure out what her phone number was or something like that, which she was... So like the lamest excuse ever. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> and she she was very skeptical of that because she had given the bail officer her phone number and she had been in contact with Brianna through the prison phone system, so they should have had a way to access it, but apparently not. So what's the Saskatchewan Ministry of Justice saying about all of this, if anything at all? They told me that they offer adequate health care to their inmates and that they do their best to ensure that inmates receive every type of health care they need. They are concluding an initial look into Brianna's death eight months after she died almost. They're supposed to be closing it up soon and then will likely, according to the Ministry of Justice spokesperson I talked to, hold an inquiry, which will not assign any sort of criminal blame or anything like that, but it is similar to the coroner's inquests we have here. So it'll make recommendations to avoid similar instances. Tanara, your article points to the larger problem of the treatment of Indigenous people within Canada's prison system. Indigenous people make up 4.3% of the population in Canada, but account for 25% of the prison population. Indigenous women make up 35% of the prison population. So could you tell us a little bit more of the overall treatment of Indigenous peoples within Canada's prison system? And are you hopeful that we're recognizing that it's an issue and are going towards change, I guess? One thing also is that the incarceration of Indigenous people and women is much higher in the prairies especially. So to the first part of your question about the treatment, pretty much at every possible step, 
indigenous people are treated worse by the system. They're and not just the prison system, by like literally every system. Yeah, every yeah. Mm-hmm. every possible system, which then feed into each other. But they're arrested more. They're tried more frequently. Once they're in prison, they're more likely to be held in segregation, solitary. Solitary. Yeah. They're more likely to be held there for longer periods of time. They're more likely to be designated dangerous offenders, which makes it much harder for them to get out of prison. Just pretty much every possible step, it's more difficult for them. And to the second part of your question about whether things are going to improve. Well, I mean, I guess we don't have to talk about improvement yet, but have we at least acknowledged a problem? Do you think nationally we realize that this is an issue? I think there's some recognition. It was in the mandate letter for the Justice Ministry to look into how Indigenous people are treated in the criminal justice system. Although when I spoke to Howard Sapers, the correctional watchdog, about that in early April, he said that even though it was in the mandate letter, he wasn't aware of anything that was actually starting to change yet. And I also don't know that the wider public in Canada sees this as a problem. Right. It's one of... The many problems where even if you hear something bad, you can look at the United States and you can at least think that it's worse there. So it's not that bad here. Yeah. Recently, Howard Sabers actually compared the prison system and the incarceration of indigenous youth and adults to residential schools. That comparison has been made several times. He's, I think, the most recent person to make it. But there have been a number of people who have either compared the two or drawn a parallel. You know, the residential school system has been over for a couple decades, but a lot of people are starting to say that the incarceration system or the criminal justice system is a continuation of that. If we're talking about concrete steps that, w- that can be taken to sort of at least start to ameliorate the situation, Howard Sapers, as we all mentioned, uh, has suggested appointing a deputy commissioner of Indigenous offenders. Have you heard of any other steps or ideas to, to try and combat this problem? We could abolish prison, but <laughs> that's not <laughs> it's not on the docket in any sort of... It's not going to happen soon, but... We really need to first examine what the problems are. There are people like Howard Sapers who have been doing that for a while, but I think there needs to be a wider awareness of what's happening and what the problems are. And rolling back some of the mandatory minimum sentencing that the Stephen Harper's government instituted for drug possession and some other crimes is a a first step. So, Supriya, I have a bit of a divisive topic for us to talk about. And I think that we have a bit of a bias here because we're both women. So something that was introduced to Parliament was the Canada Gender Equity Act, which is uh, Bill C-237. It was introduced by the NDP. And what they hope to achieve is close to gender parity in candidates slated to run in the election. So we're talking 45%, so not even 50-50 here. Right. You don't even have to achieve a 50-50 gender parity balance. And the penalty is a financial one. So if you don't achieve that almost balance, you would see a sliding scale 
drop in funds from Election Canada. And this is something that's already being done in countries across Europe, like Ireland and France. And one of the reasons this was introduced is because Canada is in 61st place worldwide when it comes to gender equity in the House. Which is absolutely appalling. It's horrendous. Here's the thing, though. Not that Lucifer needs any advocacy ever, but (laughs) if we're going to talk about this, do we really need legislation to do it? For example, I know the Liberals last election did that whole ask her to run or that they did that campaign trying to get women to run. Is there not a way to do it organically? Because I'm just thinking about the legality of the bill. And critics of the bill are, in fact, saying that it would be illegal in some ways to have to mandate this. Now, I don't think mandating 45% of candidates when, in actuality, we represent 51%, roughly, of the population Mm -hmm. is anything crazy or radical here. But do we get candidates who may not be as willing to run because you end up having two slate female candidates when you were maybe not going to? If it were to happen organically, it would have freaking happened already. The meritocracy argument is really null, considering the amount of women that we have in the oh, house. Oh yeah, totally. Right now. Yeah, but but you like, know? but here, here's a good example. Like, I would never run. Like, I get asked that all the time. What well, would you ever consider politics? And the really truthful answer is, there's no fucking way. And there are a myriad of reasons for it. But one of them is if you're looking at any sort of work-life balance, or if you're looking at raising a family than being in Ottawa while the House is sitting ends up being problematic. And let's not even get into just a gendered way in that female political candidates are viewed. So isn't there truth that women need to be convinced a little bit more to run? Maybe that speaks to another problem of maybe parliament should be friendlier to women overall. Maybe the entire parliamentary system needs to be more accommodating to family units, both for men and women. And not just lean on the argument of like, oh, guys, it's so hard to talk to women, though. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't gender equity, you know, it's it's one way to get, to get a, a bit of diversity, considering we are, in fact, you know, half the population here. But like, if you're looking at a subsection of parliament, it's not exactly as representative of the Canadian populace at large here. So there are all sorts of other diversity arguments to be made in terms of racial, ethnic, what have you. Do you think we should have legislation eventually so that we're mandating that parties should have X amount of insert race or ethnicity here candidates? The only people who can speak about issues that need to be fixed are people who've lived those issues. There's nobody better to introduce change for real Canadians than people who've lived through the things that they want to change. And I think that personal experience is incredibly important because if you live in a position of privilege through being white or through being male, you just don't experience the same things. And I think it's totally fair that our legislators should be people who come through all walks of life, to use that tired cliche. Yeah, Um, totally. But like, don't you, isn't legislation kind of getting into big brother territory? Do we really want the government to be mandating what our slate should look like? Like, it should be like, organic that like people should be like, yo, there aren't enough black women in in parliament, which is I don't think anybody can make the counter argument to that because Mm -hmm. there just aren't enough. Mm -hmm. How would you go about mandating that in a legally sound way through legislation, I guess is all I'm saying. I'm not sure what that legislation would look like, but I think that that's a discussion that needs to be had. And I'm really glad that this is a discussion that we're having because, you know, our prime minister is a quote unquote feminist and suddenly it has dawned on legislators that young people like it when everybody's included. (laughs) Um, That's, I guess, a way to get support. But I guess the other side of this is all of the people talking about feminism in Canadian politics are men. It was a man who introduced this bill. It's Trudeau who calls himself a feminist. So 
at which point are women involved like, in the what, discussion what, what, about so you're women? Saying, where are the ladies at? Is <laughs> yeah, where are the ladies at? But also, all of these grand political gestures are nice, and maybe they're a step forward to get talking about how we can change things for real women. Yeah, for example, childcare or you know some forms of healthcare access to um, abortions. No, I get it, and everything like, you're saying makes sense. And I think this bill has you know its its heart is in the right place. I guess I'm I'm naive and optimistic in that I think that change can come or- organically, and we can try and get more women to run, especially women of color, to run in in ridings where they are represented. The more we talk about it and the more it becomes front and center, it becomes easier to get people to come to that decision to, to run themselves. But does it? I mean, as soon as this bill was introduced, both the liberals and the conservatives have come out against it. And I think that there definitely needs to be some sort of initiative to make sure that all parties seek out those candidates. But if you're a if you're a party X and party X doesn't believe in having an equal representation of women or even a near equal representation of women, then shouldn't you technically suffer that at the ballot box? Isn't your punishment that Canadians don't want to vote for you because you are party X and you're the party of, of monochromatic maleness? I mean, that kind of assumes that this is the number one issue that everybody has. And that just means people have to vote with their ideals in terms of the candidate and not in terms of the party. One of the arguments that both uh, the conservatives and the liberals have brought up is that this is impeding on free speech, partially because they will not get as many campaign funds if they don't run the 45% women that is promised with the bill. But then the other side of that is like the two parties who hate it are also the ones who fundraise the most. So if you really didn't want to run any women, just Fundraise more money, man. All right, that's our show for this week. Just a programming note. We are indeed taking next week off. But it's for a very, very happy reason. Producer Kevin Sexton is getting married. Just a regular reminder to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. You can search Canada Land Commons in that little search bar. Our producer is Kevin Sexton, who's going to be a married man the next time you read these credits. That great music that you hear throughout the podcast is produced by Nathan Burley. CanadaLandShow.com is where you can find us. If you want to email Jane, you can email her, I believe. It's Jane at CanadaLandShow.com. Always excited to hear from you, even if I'm snarky about it. And if you want to get at me, then get at Jane and she'll let me know what you're talking about. If you like this show, please support us. Go to Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. The next episode of Shortcuts is out this Thursday and Commons will be off next week, but we'll be out the following Tuesday. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 